electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. God, people want to make friends? I'm just trying to make you a little money. My job's not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC. Tweet me at Jim Kramer. Don't like September. Never have. Always seems like the month where the sellers come out of nowhere. The world war out of the wilderness. Like today, where the Dow lost 196 points, that's be declined 0.42%. NASDAQ only dipped 0.08% more than that in a moment. But the sellers have the reasons. Bond yields, both short and long, are headed the wrong way, meaning higher. And today was no different. Stocks always march to the beat of higher rates. March down, that is. Plus, I mean, the market's overbought. We got some new supply coming, including an arm holdings IPO, gigantic one that was supposed to be red hot sizzling. It seems to be cooling rather rapidly now. It's about to come public. Doesn't help that we have a looming strike against one of, uh, one or all of the big three automakers while oil prices continue to climb higher. All bad. No wonder people want to sell. sell, sell it sell, actually sell. makes sense. For once... Now, I made all of these worries crystal clear to the CNBC Investing Club this weekend, and they certainly sting. We know interest rates always matter, and we always fear the IPO market unleashing the dogs of excess stock supply and the ennui that follows. But the amazing thing about this market is it does have a self-correcting nature to it. As soon as you point out something negative, it immediately does get hammered. For example, when I mulled over the IPO sale of Arm Holdings this weekend by the once legendary SoftBank, I had this vision of a company with a stock that doubled from the get-go. That's right, could double, causing instant froth in the market as dozens of similar companies suddenly came public. But now, that doesn't look like it would be the case. Despite Arm's enviable position pretty much every aspect of tech, which includes being the central processing unit for NVIDIA's most advanced line of artificial intelligence chips. The IPO simply not yet hasn't drawn that kind of interest that I thought it would. That's fantastic news for the overall market. The best thing that could happen for all the bulls is that ARM stock goes to a slight premium and everyone, including you, gets some stock. But it doesn't shoot up so fast that it unleashes a flood of additional IPOs. We can't handle the supply. Overenthusiasm? Corrected. What else? I feared that the only thing keeping the Fed from continuing to raise rates is that sticky nature of higher housing prices. Out of nowhere, I mean literally out of nowhere, the stock gods heard my concern and the shares of all the major home builders fell just precipitously today. Hideous day for them. They've been the Fed's nemesis and any rollover of their stocks, which have been among the strongest performers in the market this year, could be signaling a long-awaited cooling off of home prices, meaning the Fed might be done. Over exuberance, expunge. We have no resolution to that potential United Auto Workers strike, though, and I was none too happy to hear that President Biden isn't worried. 
About it? I mean, how come you're not worried about the auto industry shutting down when the CEO's sure? Does Biden know something we don't know, maybe about the UAW's intransigent leadership? If he's right, that'd be one more cured worry. But Biden's feel-good story doesn't jive with the facts, at least not yet. Of course, if there's no strike, that's great news for the market because we don't want to lose that manufacturing capacity. Not to mention the vehicles we need at prices we can afford. Yes, prices would shoot up with a strike. A strike will make cars and trucks a lot more expensive. It sure looks like the UAW wants to strike, though. Can President Biden have been that idle in the statement? No way to curb your lack of enthusiasm after his offhanded remark, except to say that perhaps he's close to Sean Fain, the new leader of the UAW, who is a throwback to the Walter Ruther era, when this union could effectively bring the whole city of Detroit to its knees and hurt the whole country. Then there's oil. What can I say? It's become the momentum trade that's working and breaking out. I like Pioneer Natural Resources. I like Kotara Energy for the Chapel Trust. Pioneer is the low-cost oil producer in the Permian. Kotara is the low-cost natural gas play in the country. I put them in only because I have yet to figure out how we can reverse the trend of higher energy prices. No answer short of the president dumping whatever he can from the entire strategic petroleum reserve at once. A suboptimal move to bridge a temporary situation. Well, it certainly helped last year. But what was most encouraging today had to do with the mega caps. I mean, these remain unbelievable. Out of nowhere, we got some crazy rallies. Meta platforms, after spending the morning trading water declining, suddenly surged and finished the day up nearly four bucks. A classic case of an increase in the face of nothing, a characterism of all the mega caps. Same deal with characteristic of all the mega caps. I like that more. Same deal with Microsoft, an explosion higher after a so-so opening, also based on absolutely nothing. Apple, NVIDIA, and Alphabet were resting comfortably. But Tesla jumped more than 11 bucks on better sales in China. Sometime, something It really does call into question all the worries that we have of a flood of cheaper Chinese electric vehicles here, swamping our auto market. Say something we'll, we'll have to talk about with Chamber Secretary Gina Raimondo, fresh off her trip to China. She is so on this issue. We had a tougher time with senior growth stocks today. Uh, sure, Chipotle tacked on almost 13 points after a strong push by Baird. I think that $1,951 stock is headed to 2100 written all over it, even as the darn thing's already up 40% for the year, because the senior growth stocks in this market tend to have some tremendous staying power. Witness the endless run in service now, up another six and closing in on 600, where it would be down just 14 points from 52-week high. The only spoil sport is the very odd action in Salesforce which reported a blowout quarter just last week and rallied 12 points in after hours trading, only to see almost the entire move now repealed one week before their huge Dreamforce conference in San Francisco nonetheless. Still, these positives will not outweigh the negatives if interest rates don't stop rising. It happened again today, just a huge increase in rates. In yesterday's Investing Club missive, I talked about the pernicious nature of relentless rate increases as they tend to crush the stocks of the industrials and the transports, which is exactly what happened today. There's no way this market will be able to advance if rates keep climbing. No way. I repeat that. No way. Look, I've been adamant there will be no recession. But that adamance came from a belief that those who looked at interest rates a year ago, the inverted yield curve, remember that, and pronounced them as an arbiter of recession were just dead wrong. Rates have to stop somewhere near here, though, to keep that recession off the table. Maybe we avoid both. Rates stabilize and stocks fly higher. But that's not what oil is saying, and it's not what the major cyclicals retorted today. Here's the bottom line. Right now, I'm still putting the hate on September. I always do. It's a month that is down, on average, about 0.7% a year, until otherwise proven wrong by more than just a couple of insanely robust 
mega cap tech stocks. Let's take some questions. Let's go to Edward in California. Edward. Yeah, hi, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Of course, Edward. Thank you. Uh, I bought some Google on the oh, before the split, and it went down, and it's gone up a little bit, and so I'm a little bit positive, but it's been kind of nowhere since then. And I'm wondering if, uh, if because of the increased pressure from competitors, if I should sell it, or if there's something on the horizon that's going to make it go up. So, um, sure this is Google. Uh, okay, let me explain what I think can happen here. I am a DirecTV user, okay? I just got rid of it. I'm pulling down all those dishes. They wrecked the look of the house. Everybody else is too. Why? Because of YouTube. Who owns YouTube? Alphabet. Who owns uh, Google? Alphabet. That means fine. And that's the way my travel trust is playing. I'm still putting the hate on September. Hi, haters. But maybe just maybe I'll be proven wrong by more than just a couple of mega cap tech stocks that happened all during uh, 2010 to 2020. I'll make money tonight. August was a whirlwind, so I got to recap the action. And you know what? The set off a little hard for the month of September. And Kramer fave NVIDIA has obviously had a monster run. So is the stock ready for another leg higher or should investors start getting a little cautious? I'm going off the charts in clinical way to find out. And as I mentioned, Commerce Secretary Jin Romano just returned from a trip to China, meeting, meeting with a bunch of important officials. So I'm sitting down with the Commerce Secretary to learn more about what went on during this highly anticipated visit. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visited 
visibility at Indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Summer's over. Finally, September. But before you can get your arms around the present, you need to know where we're coming from. And that's why tonight I want to spend a few minutes reviewing what happened in the tumultuous month of August, with all the major averages finishing down roughly 2%, give or take. That undersells the level of volatility, though. Remember, in the second half of July, I warned you repeatedly that the market was due for a pullback. And that's exactly what hit us in the first three weeks of August, where the Dow and the S&P pulled back roughly 5 and 6% respectively from their highs. That's a big decline. But worse, the Nasdaq plunged 9% from its mid-July peak. Amazing, isn't it? Just like, boom. Now, two weeks ago, we were teetering. After those three straight weeks of decline, we were terrified of what would happen when market darling NVIDIA reported earnings, and that's been a focus of mine, as you know. And then Fed Chief Jay Powell made his big speech at Jackson Hole a couple of days later, the very thing that killed the market a year ago. But that's right around when I started feeling more constructive about the market, in large part because the tone just felt too negative. Everyone was betting we'd get the same thing happening again at Jackson Hole. Hey, by mid-August, we began to add some of our favorite positions. The Travel Trust put a lot of money to work because the market felt too oversold. Sure enough, that crucial week of August 21st proved to be a turning point for the market. First, NVIDIA shot the lights out with its second straight enormous beat and raise result. While Wall Street's initial reaction was uh, to the numbers was schizophrenic, Remember that everybody had been terrified that NVIDIA would disappoint, and that definitely didn't happen. One reason the stock came roaring back last week after really getting hammered, as people just said, eh, it's not that good. That was wrong. As for Jackson, all that ended up being nothing to worry about either. While J-Pal told us that inflation remains too high, no kidding, and reiterated the Fed's long-term 2% uh, inflation target, again, no kidding, warning that he was prepared to keep raising interest rates to get us there, he was far less hawkish than the bears feared. Plus, Powell acknowledged that the risks are two-sided, meaning the Fed needs to do enough to stamp out inflation once and for all. That's good, but not so much that it inflicts unnecessary harm to the economy. Also good. In the end, he told us that the Fed would proceed carefully, meaning that they'll keep tightening, but they're going to be measured about it rather than ruthlessly raising rates, lockstep, straining the life out of the economy. And by the way, that is what happened in 2005-2006, and it was really the prelude to the, to the Great Recession. Now, it was reassuring that when you look at the Fed Fund's futures market, it's clear that very few money managers are betting on a rate hike at the next meeting two weeks from now. I like that. Now, it doesn't hurt that we got some cooler than expected economic data last week with an updated second quarter GDP growth rate that, that looked uh, like 2.4 to 2.1, from 2.4 down to 2.1, as well as some early signs that the labor market might finally be softening up. Now, last Tuesday, we learned that job openings fell much more than expected in July. And while last Friday's August employment report technically came in slightly stronger than expected on the job creation front, it also included a 3.8% unemployment rate, up from 3.5% in July. Remember, this is a bad news is good news situation. Wall Street wants the economy to cool down so the Fed will stop tightening, which is why that uptick in unemployment allowed the market to roar. Carl and I went back and forth this morning. I say four is a possibility in the next two months. Of course, that doesn't mean the sell-off earlier in August was totally senseless. There was a lot that went wrong last month, from the slow-rolling Chinese real estate apocalypse to signs that the American consumers are finally running out of steam just as student loan repayments are coming back. But the main thing you need to understand about August is what happened with longer-term interest rates. In a wild blitz that started mid-July, long rates rose rapidly for about a month. 
The yield on the benchmark 10-year Treasury jumped from 3.75 on July 19th to a high of 4.36 on August 21st. The 10-year yield even took out its highs from last October and was at the highest level since late 2007, for retreating over the past couple of weeks to 4.26%. Not ideal, as we saw the industrials be pummeled by higher interest rates today. Basically, investors came into August with a lot of confidence, even some cockiness, as second quarter earnings season was generally going pretty well. Inflation was coming down, and we had a recognition that, no, we weren't at the brink of an inevitable recession, as we predicted on this show. But things were going so well for the economy, that interest rates started rising really quickly. At first, with no one really noticing, and then last month with everyone noticing. That caused the stock market to get clobbered for good reason. Remember, higher rates put more pressure on both consumers and businesses as the cost of financing rises. It also kicked off a new wave of worries, yes, about those stupid regional banks with poorly positioned bond portfolios. Jeez, they were the bane of our earlier existence in in March, if you recall. At the same time, growth stocks always get killed when rates are rising because their future earnings look less impressive when you factor in higher rates. Plus, they generally made bond investments more appealing versus dividend stocks. Then rates cooled off, though, in large part because Chairman Powell signaled that the Fed won't be too draconian with its rate hikes going forward. Instead, it sure sounds like they'll be data dependent, which is especially good news considering that we get some much softer economic data last week. As for what happens next, well, we'll find out together. This past weekend, I wrote about my outlook for September for CNBC Investing Club subscribers explaining the mixed outlook for this market. Guys, I got to tell you, I thought it was required reading. I spent so much time on it, part because I was recuperating from a triple hernia. What else are you going to do? September is a tough month, and this one probably won't be much different. Overall, I believe caution remains warranted, at least for the time being. We're suddenly technically overbought again, on the, uh, according to that uh, five, S&P 500 short-range oscillator that I follow religiously, although it was down a little bit today. And September is historically a lousy month for stocks. Plus, the threat from higher long rates remains very palpable and very real. If the August highs for the yield and the 10-year remain the highs, stocks could have a chance, especially if we get a more dovish view from the Fed in two weeks. But if long rates revisit or go through those highs, you got to watch out here. There are other risks out there, like a potentially disruptive strike by the United Auto Workers, as I talked about at the top of the show, and the impact of a couple of large IPOs, which I also mentioned. So the bottom line? Even if some of these problems do materialize and stocks pull back again, possibly even revisiting their August lows, you still don't want to get too negative on this market because the long-term outlook remains pretty darn positive now that the Fed's backing off. But even though I like the long-term, this month could get easily very difficult. I want you to buckle up, show some fortitude, and prepare for the possibility of turbulence. Bad Money's back after the break. Coming up, the big picture for a big winner. Off the charts and onto the bandwagon of a longtime crave fave. Next. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash business gold card. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.
what's next for the stock of NVIDIA after its phenomenal run? Friendly viewers know my stance on this one. Just like Apple, NVIDIA say don't trade it, just own its stock. That's our strategy for the Chapel Trust. Now, I even named my dog NVIDIA, uh, and then he passed away, so I named the next dog NVIDIA, okay? And they, they have cards to be able to get right into the headquarters. I can't get in when I want to. But in addition to being a tremendous long-term winner, this thing's also incredibly volatile, so it's easier to stick with it when you have a sense of what's coming. That's why tonight we're going off the charts with Elvin Dan Fitzpatrick, he's a terrific technician, who's the founder of Stock Market Mentor and host of his own podcast, The Fitz Factor, in order to get a clearer picture of what's in store for the stock. Specifically, how much it's already run, and, and could there still be some more upside? Everybody asks me about this all the time. Now, look, a lot of people look at a stock that surged from $10 in 2016 to $108, roughly eight months ago, all the way to $485 today. And they'll figure it's got to run out of steam sometime, right? I mean, yeah. Even though NVIDIA just gave us yet another tremendous quarter with stunningly positive guidance. But Fitzpatrick is adamant NVIDIA can keep going higher after such a huge run as long as the semiconductor industry, its milieu, doesn't go out of style in the Wall Street fashion show. Even though these guys make insanely powerful chips that enable artificial intelligence, no other competitor comes even close. The stock will struggle if professional money managers turn against the entire group. Remember, at least in the near term, the worst house in a good neighborhood will be a better performer than the best house in a bad neighborhood. So if you want to know where NVIDIA is headed, Fitzpatrick says you first need to check out the neighborhood. The weekly chart of the SOX, the Semiconductor Index, is captured by the Van Eck, that's V-A-N-E-C-K, Vector Semiconductor ETF. That's the SMH for you, home gamers. And this is Ledger's, one of the first ones that we, in the, when I was a hedge fund manager, followed. We said, oh, okay, we got to beat the SMH. Now, fortunately, when Fitzpatrick looks at this picture, he sees a great pattern that's begging for an upside breakout. Not yet. After peaking at 160 near the end of 2021, the semiconductor index plummeted along with the broader market. That's losing uh, nearly 50% of its value right here. Uh, That was in only nine months. It was horrific. Then late last year, the semiconductor index bottomed. Since then, it's retraced almost the entire sell-off and worked its way back to 156. In fact, Ms. Patrick points out that the semiconductor index made up its losses over a nine-month period following the bottom, the same length of time as the previous decline. Now, I'm, I am sure that Callum Roden, who understands Fibonacci's, would say, well, that makes a lot of sense. These things are symmetrical. Now, over the past several weeks, the semiconductor index has tested its ceiling resistance at 160 several times, but it hasn't been able to penetrate it. Uh, because there's too much supply at that level. In other words, there's just too much selling that keeps coming in right there. Fitzpatrick thinks the SMH is the linchpin in NVIDIA's future performance. If the SMH can break out above 160, it's clear the way for everything in the semiconductor space to keep running. So what would that mean for NVIDIA? Let's take a look. Okay, let's zoom in on the weekly chart of this great company. Just like the SMH, NVIDIA peaked in late 2001. Okay, so we got the same pattern, okay? Before losing this time, instead of 50, nearly 70% of its value over the following 11 months. Hey, you don't get to four... The reason why people get shaken out and don't get to be in stocks like this is because of that. That's just so hard to go through. Uh, and then the broader semiconductor space, well, bottoms, and next thing you know, uh, this thing led the charge up. And then it led the charge down. And since the bottom last fall, it's been leading the charge up again. And unlike the rest of the group, NVIDIA's been making new highs for a while now. It's because of a couple of unbelievable quarters. At this point, Fitzpatrick says the stock's stuck in no man's land between 400 and 500. 
currently near the higher end of the range. Right now, he doesn't think there's any particularly reason to bet heavily on this one. But there's no reason to sell it either. You don't fold when you got a handful of aces. He points out that NVIDIA is currently down just 3% from its ceiling resistance at 500. And rather than getting on board before that level is cleared, he recommends waiting. He wants to see if NVIDIA can break out above $500, at which point he get very positive. That's a very technical way to look at it. Of course, he also thinks that an upside breakout looks pretty likely. Over the past three weeks, NVIDIA has traded higher on average volume, which tells Fitzpatrick that the big institutions are still buying the stock. In other words, so this is a right there. That up move is a kind of a polygraph to see whether this move is truthful. But there's a reason he's hesitant to pound the table in video right here. Because what if he can't clear that hurdle at 500? Oh, boy. Then there's, there, there's no real support. Uh, there's no floor between the 480s, where it's currently trading, and the next key support level at 400. The only one is the 10-week moving average around 448. If NVIDIA falls below that level, Fitzpatrick says it's a gift to the bulls. But until then, he would hold back on a pullback. If you can buy another tranche down at $400, that would be even better from his perspective. This is a stock that tends to have wild swings. The only problem with waiting for a huge sell-off is that very few people have the fortitude to buy NVIDIA into big bouts of weakness. Fortitude is a great word to describe what you need to do if you're going to stay in this one. That's why I always tell you to own it. Don't trade it, so you don't have to think about that. Fitzpatrick's willing to trade it, though, as long as you know that your risk tolerance and have an, you know your risk tolerance and an exit strategy in case the stock starts falling apart. So now let's zoom out and look at the weekly chart going all the way back to 2016, where we started to get a better sense of the stock's trajectory long term. Going back to 2016, Fitzpatrick points out you can see a long term uptrend. It's quite a move here. Uh, that briefly, the stock briefly touched near the end of 2021, right from there. Uh, if you extend that line out over the next year or so, Fitz says there's a real possibility that NVIDIA can hit. Uh, you know, it's, I, sometimes you hate to say this because your trust is long it, and you say don't, don't trade it on it, but he says it, it can hit $1,000. $1,000, meaning that it could double where it's currently trading, almost $2, billion, $2 trillion company. Of course, stocks still go up in a straight line. They run and rest and run some more. Sometimes they run in the opposite direction, come roaring back like, like NVIDIA has done over the last couple of years. Fitzpatrick expects the prices to ebb and flow because that's what happens to even the strongest charts. Over the next year or so, he thinks you can get several rallies and retracements, especially when you remember that this one tends to be the wildest trader that we know. But as long as NVIDIA's 10-week moving average can stay above its 40-week moving average, and here's the 10-week is red, and this blue is 40, and here you go. That's a classic sign the chartist says we're in bull mode, and he believes the stock will continue to be a big winner in bull mode. Just that you might be able to get a better price if you wait and you're patient and get it to next dip. So here's the bottom line. The charts, as interpreted by Dan Fitzpatrick, suggests that NVIDIA still got the capacity to be a huge long-term winner, but you might need to be willing to go through some short-term turbulence in order to get there. And you know what? I, and yes, the current NVIDIA, and I'm sure the late NVIDIA, agree. Let's take some phone calls. Let's go to Kevin in Texas. Kevin. Booyah, Jim. How you doing? I am doing fine, Kevin. Thank you for asking. How are you? Oh, we're doing well. Good. I just, good. Had, a couple, I just had a quick question for you sure. called my favorite chip company, AMD. Well, they gave, a, they gave a great presentation today at the uh, at a Goldman Sachs conference, talked a lot 
These two talk a lot, a lot about artificial intelligence and how well they're doing. And I tend to agree. I mean, what can I say? It's a great American company, and Lisa Sue does a fantastic job. Now, the charts interpreted by Dan Fitzpatrick suggest that NVIDIA still got the capacity to be a huge long-term winner, but you might need to be willing to go through some short-term turbulence in order to get there. Fortitude, that's what you need. I think he's right. Much more made money at, including my Swiss with Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo. The U.S. has a tense relationship with China, as we know. Amid semiconductor export bans, kind of involving, yes, NVIDIA. Where is the state of our two nations right now? I'm going to the source herself after a visit. Then the market has battled around Fed Chief Fed Chair Jay Powell's ability to tame inflation for years. Hey, but should we give him the benefit of the doubt in his approach? Or is his plan just not working? I'll give you my take in all your calls, rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. Right now, we've got an incredibly tense relationship with China. First, Trump cracked down on this trade war. Then Biden cracked down even harder with his export bans, including our most advanced semiconductors. Now, I've been a pretty consistent critic of the Chinese Communist Party. But even I wouldn't mind if we get some de-escalation because I got to tell you, we've got to make their government stick to its promises, admittedly a big if. And if we do that, then I think good things can happen. That's why I watched closely when Commerce Secretary Jin Raimondo visited China last week and met with a slew of high-level officials, including their Commerce Minister and the Premier. While she remains steadfast on many of the new trade restrictions, like the advanced semiconductor export ban, there seemed to be an eagerness on both sides to improve our currently fraught economic relationship, something that could be good for both sides. Do not take it from me. Let's go directly to the source. Let's go to Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo, easily my favorite cabinet member right now. Secretary Raimondo, welcome back to Man Money. Good morning, Jim, or good afternoon. It's great to be with you. Well, first, before we get started, I want to point out some congratulations are in order. You have turned your office from something of what I always regard as a political backwater, maybe a sinecure, to the most powerful cabinet person on issues ranging from trillions of dollars in trade to national defense and the recreation of our entire industrial technology base. You oversee a vast, well-funded apparatus. And I think that you have made it so that we can be competitive with China. So I just felt we should start by saying, well done. Thank you. I appreciate that. I mean, the Commerce Department's where it's at. We're right at that intersection of technology and economic security and national security. And I've built a fantastic team here. And uh, there's a lot of work to do, including with respect to our competition with China. So uh, I do feel at the center of so much of the president's priorities. And we're hitting it hard every day to deliver. All right, let's talk about China. We've got some export uh, control enforcement. I know you've emphasized that we are not negotiating on ship exports when it comes to national security, but you want to have enforcement and transparency to increase compliance. That would help us. But let me ask you, what is technology that is about national security? For instance, we've got a whole slew of chip companies, almost every big one, that is interested in artificial intelligence. That's the most important battleground right now. Is that military? Is that something that involves our national security and therefore needs to be stopped on our shores? So it's a really good question, and this is what we spend so much time thinking of. Our job and our intention here is to be as narrow as possible. Right? We don't want to control anything 
that we don't have to, because that hurts U.S. businesses. So when we think about it, we think about, you know, is it, readily, is it widely available in the rest of the world, or is it just something that the U.S. produces? Is it something that China can't make on its own? Uh, is it something that China needs to advance its military? I'll tell you, I'll be very honest, when it comes to artificial intelligence, we are going to err on the side of caution. You know yourself, Jim. You talk to the inventors of artificial intelligence, as I do. Even they are a little bit scared about the destructive power of AI. And we can't let that get into the hands of the Chinese military. So it's a judgment call, of course. We want to be transparent and honest with, with everyone. But when it comes to AI, it's, it's better to be safe than sorry, because the U.S. leads the world in AI. We are ahead of China. We cannot afford for China to get our most sophisticated AI chips for its military. And we're going to do whatever we need to do to make sure that that doesn't happen. Boy, I'm sure glad you said that. I, I do speak to them all, and I do think that artificial intelligence is where we are a clear leader like we used to be in many different issues. We kind of lost our way. We're back, and I'm glad you're not willing to compromise that. Now, the Commercial Issue Working Group, you, have, you spoke to 100 business executives. It does seem like there is a desire upon our executives to do more business with China. Do they share your desire to be sure that it's done on a level playing field, or are they just so eager to get the dollars, well, you won, that they're willing to compromise? Uh, no, look, U.S. business leaders are practical and pragmatic. They've been doing business in China for decades. They do business all over the world in some difficult places, but they do need a level playing field. They can't operate and think that there's going to be a raid on their business and they're not going to be told exactly what they did wrong. You know, they can't have their employees arrested for protesting or sometimes not being told why that why they've been arrested. So. You know, the recent moves by the Chinese government with their data localization or their counter-espionage amendments, I, are, it's just too much. And what businesses are telling me is the risk is too high and there are other places to do business in the world. It's interesting. I did myself personally talk to over 100 CEOs of U.S. businesses before going to China. And to say that they were desperate for some kind of a dialogue is not an exaggeration. I'm the first Commerce Secretary in more than five years to show up on the ground in China. So I'm not going to say we're going to solve every problem because we won't. But to even find some practical solutions, I have to be the voice of business and put it to the Chinese government and give them, you know, a chance to make some changes and show some action. At the same time, though, you met with Premier Li. He did say that he's hoping that we'll meet him uh, more than halfway because he feels that we have been taking advantage of him. I mean, how can there be common ground if you have a high-level official who feels that we've not been an honest broker? Well, when he said that, I pointed out to him that uh, Alipay and UnionPay operate freely in the United States, but MasterCard and Visa, you know, can't do that in China. Media companies, Chinese media companies, operate freely in the United States, not so in China. You know, on and on and on. I was, you know, not a pushover in my nope. discussions. And, you know, you just got to take it to them. Now, you did have, and I love the people-to-people -people relationship that we've always had with the Chinese, a moment where you hugged a seven-year-old girl at Shanghai Disney, 
And I said to myself, okay, let's start with tourism. We've cut back because of COVID. We used to have 10 times more visits from them. Obviously, they would like more tourism from us. Isn't that where an easy breakthrough could be made? Absolutely, which is why I went to Disney, an iconic American brand, a spectacular park in Shanghai. It's why I met with the tourism minister. Let's have more flights. Let's have more tourism. You know, it's $30 billion to our economy. It creates a lot of jobs in the U.S. where Chinese visitors come to the U.S. It also cuts down on um, racism or you know, in, increased emotional escalation. By the way, that girl was gorgeous. That <laughs> wasn't a scripted moment. I just saw her open my arms and she gave me a hug. And it's, you know, at the end of the day, this there is a shared humanity. And that's a, why we have to manage this very tense relationship so it doesn't drift um, to a place right. of conflict. People to people, non-cynical. We always believe that. Now, let's talk about toughness. We have a 27% tariff on autos right now. I mean, if they play ball, we could cut that tariff. Or if they don't, would you raise that tariff and make it so that Ford GM and Chrysler have uh, an even field? I know Ford's very worried about the Chinese automakers. So the President Biden's been clear about this. we didn't we didn't put those tariffs in place. We don't think they make a whole lot of sense in many cases. So Catherine Tai, the USTR, is right now doing a four year review of the tariffs to see if they're effective. I don't think the administration will make any changes until that review is completed. Look, the reality is China's practices of subsidizing their businesses have hurt U.S. workers. So we need a level playing field. Uh, Having said that, I think the Trump tariffs could have been much more strategic, and that's why we're doing this four-year review. Excellent. Now, I do want to get to a philosophical issue, which is I wonder whether we're returning to a Cold War period. I feel sometimes relationships have deteriorated to the point where it's kind of like during the Tiananmen Square horror. Um, Do we have a technological Cold War? Do we just have bad relations right now? Morris Chang, godfather of all semis from TSMC and a man I idolize, is talking about the possibility that they could do a blockade. Do we have to send the Seventh Fleet, the 82nd Airborne? What is, uh, if we spiral, how do we stop? That's why I went to China. Number one is communication. Even in the depths of the Cold War with Russia, we had communication, dialogue, back channel. It's absolutely critical. It's also, you know, why I went to places like Disney and Boeing. Like American soft power in the form of our great brands can help to de-escalate. There's over a thousand Starbucks in Shanghai and growing. So not decoupling our economy is, is critical, not just for our economy, but for our national security. So I think it, there's no easy answer. You know, people ask me, do I trust China? No, but we have to have a stable relationship. We have to be practical. We have to do business where we can, communicate and have dialogue where we can, and never compromise our national security. It's not simple, but we can do it. And if we do all of that, we, I think, can manage the conflict to a place of you know, there'll always be tension, but not a hot conflict. Let's leave it right there. A hopeful note in the sense that we all know what can't happen. I want to thank U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo for coming on Mad Money. It is just a pleasure to have you, Madam Secretary. I love coming on the show. Thanks. Keep it up. Good to see you. Mad Money's back after the break. 
Coming up next, you, Kramer, and the answers to help secure your financial future. It's an electric lightning round when we return. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski daddy time for the lightning round. Crimson Brown. I'm going to start with Brandon in my home state, New Jersey. Brandon. Hey, Kramer. How's hey, it Brandon. going? What's going on, man? Uh, so, you know, you like to drink coffee, right? Yeah, I love coffee. Yeah. So um, I've been looking at this company that I, I don't know if they make coffee. I think they do... Uh, Something with like additive space on coffee. But yeah, what is that? Called, uh, Starbucks there? Is that Starbucks? Uh, w E S T West. No, no, no. The West, they lose money. Starbucks makes money. I'd like that. I always like the making money factor here. That's just so big for the lightning round. Let, but, nice fellow, though. Let's go to Carlos in Texas, please. Carlos. Booyah, Jimmy Chill. Booyah, man. What's going on? I'm calling today about a stock that's down 85% from its all time high. It happens to be a Kathy Woods darling, but more importantly, I want to know what Jimmy Chill thinks about Twilio. Well, we're going to get rid of the, the KOD aspect of Kathy Wood, which, by the way, means kiss of death. Um, I do like what Jeff Walsh is doing, put together Twilio in a better way. I think that Twilio is A-OK. Is it my favorite stock? No, but I don't think it's a bad stock, do How about we go to Drew in Connecticut? Drew! Booyah, brother Jim. Oh, man, how you doing, partner? What's going on? My, my stock is J.M. Smucker. It's okay. You know, the food stocks, boy, someone downgraded General Mills today. That is really aggressive. The food stocks are just okay. And putting that in, in context is the one that you like is just okay. I don't think just okay merits ownership, so I'm going to say no to that. Let's go to Jonathan in Pennsylvania. Jonathan. Booyah, Jim. Jonathan PA. How are you? I am good. How are you? Good. I am a very happy investment club member. Um, yes. I'm calling about a high beta stock, which recently is losing money with negative operating and net cash flows. We'd love your input on how aluminum prices are affecting Alcoa and where you see No, we don't want going. Alcoa. I mean, Alcoa, look, I never liked the whole separation of the company. I, it was the whole way was to get rid of the Alcoa cyclicality. So I'm going to say letter uh, double A is no go stick to batteries. Double-A batteries work very well. I got a big thing on them from Amazon. I couldn't believe it. it came like this. I ordered them in the morning came in the afternoon. Double-A batteries. Who can figure it with this Amazon? How about that? Let's go to Jeff in Kentucky, please. Jeff. Hello, Jim Kramer. Hey, Jeff. How you mega doing? Boo- mega booyahs to you. Oh, hey, a I'm triple a, mega I'm a longtime club member. Excellent. Thanks for all you do and all, all that Jeff Marks does for us. Oh, man, you really see a lifesaver. After that triple yeah, hernia, man, he was all over it. Thank you. What's up? Yeah. Well, I'm calling about one of our most frustrating stocks that we own, Morgan Stanley. Should we continue to hold this? It is so frustrating. Okay, so I debated this all last week, and I said, listen, James Gorman is one of the reasons why I want it. He's going to be out at the end of the year, but it's 4% yield. I'm reading The House of Morgan by Chernow. It's a good book. Morgan Stanley's got good bloodlines. I'm going to stick with it. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, Pilot Powell's bumpy ride. From inflation to housing, by September will be critical for the Fed. Next.
When the book is written on this period, Fed Chief Jay Powell will go down as the guy who piloted the economic plane onto a course that gave you very little inflation turbulence and a smooth ride. Notice I didn't say a hard landing or a soft landing, which is a piece of outdated Wall Street jargon that doesn't really apply to the current moment. I'm sick of it. Powell's raised rates to play for time, drive down inflation. We got our supply chain crisis sorted out, which allows them to avoid any kind of landing at all. This morning, when Goldman Sachs took its odds from recession down from 20% to 15%, they gave you the tacit recognition that the plane's not falling from the sky. It's just busy flying. Why doesn't Powell therefore get the respect he deserves? Some of it's a belief that he kept rates too low too long. Oh, my God, the intelligentsia always hits you with that. In retrospect, sure, maybe he should have started three to six months earlier. But when you look back, there was no way he was going to start tightening until he was sure we'd more or less gotten over COVID. Powell proceeded with caution, which was the right approach. By the way, he started tightening much sooner than most central bankers in developed countries. And when he got caught with the rate, he was totally ruthless. Exactly what we needed to beat inflation. Now, Powell will be tested a different way soon. Despite a Goldilocks-looking employment, Goldilocks-looking employment number, not too hot, not too cold, the bond market's begun to become a negative factor for the economy. It's been a theme of this whole show. We're getting progressively higher long rates. I don't like that. For ages, the long rates were too low, almost a point and a half lower than the Fed-mandated short rates, which was always viewed by these people who seemed to know better that it was a sign of impending recession. They were wrong. I argue vociferously that the so-called long-dated paper was a disaster waiting to happen. People should sell, sell, sell. And those who owned it have lost fortunes as the plane simply wasn't able to land. They listened to no one. I was right, though. See, you got to be careful of what you wish for, though, because now the 20 years creeping up to where the short rates are. As the recognition that there's no landing ahead weighs on those who made the ill-advised decision to buy those bonds and are getting killed. Their furious selling sell, 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 is sell. taking the yield on the 20-year, another year that I look at, to almost 4.6%. And that means we're going to see some meaningful increase in both mortgage rates, luckily headed for eight and change, and credit card rates, which seem to go up exponentially on any uptick in longer-term Treasury yields. Well, I always tell you to pay those down. It's got to cause some slowing out, slow travel, saving. By the way, mortgage rates go to 9%. That's going to crush the housing stocks, including Toll Brothers, already down more than five points from its all-time high late last week. And Toll is the rich man's home builder with a hefty percentage of cash buyers. The others have really been crushed. Uh, by the way, I predict huge declines in the aggregate companies, Vulcan and, Material, Vulcan and Martin Marietta Materials, and they were both down roughly 3% today. There are nominally infrastructure plays, of course, but they really trade on new housing projects with the road building for these developments spurring a huge chunk of the business. Oh, and as I said at the top of the show, there is nothing worse for the industrials or transports than higher long-term rates. Now, Powell is a difficult tightrope to walk here. He needs to make housing more affordable. It's the last big alf- influ- influ- inflation outlier, excuse me, up some 40% since COVID. At 40% housing costs? Wow. Higher rates could do the trick, but at a huge cost to the rest of the economy. And that's not Powell's plan. He wants home builders to put more homes up, but it's proven to be impossible given the newfound discipline of all the builders, coupled with the lack of land to build on and the myriad zoning issues. So far, Powell's rate hikes have cooled pretty much everything. Everything but oil, which is a function of OPEC Plus, and housing simply not cooperating yet. As a huge fan of Powell, I'm not willing to concede that he isn't ultimately making housing costs less. We should get a glut at this pace and then a fall off in price of some great magnitude. Oil is a function of the war in Ukraine, which is not something he can control, of course. So September is shaping up as a battle royal between J. Powell and housing, a war he needs to win 
with a piece that must be lower prices while dealing with pesky energy costs at the same time. I do not envy this man. But unlike pretty much everyone else in the media, I'm giving the guy the benefit of the doubt. After all, he's navigated us through since COVID began. He deserves that benefit of the doubt. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise you to find it just for you right here at Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. Last call starts now. All opinions expressed by Jim Cramer on this podcast are solely Cramer's opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by Cramer on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Jim Cramer as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. Cramer's opinions are based upon information he considers reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries want warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Mad Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Mad Money Disclaimer. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 